The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Absolute moral claims are making a resurgence along with demands for action in response. Yet at the same time, many proclaim the value and importance of upholding diverse cultural outlooks with sometimes radically different moral codes. Is a universal moral code then a guise for the tyranny of Western Christian ethics or is it the cornerstone of a fair and just society in any culture and at any time. Joining us to debate the nature of morality are infamous anarcho-capitalist David Friedman, leading analytic philosopher Timothy Williamson, and morality specialist Maria Bakramian. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Robert Roland Smith. Thank you very much indeed, and welcome everybody to this uh, debate today, Moral Truths and Moral Tyrannies. What are we going to be talking about today? Um, well, we're going to be talking about the idea that absolute moral claims seem to be making a, uh, a resurgence, along with demands for action in response to that. Yet, at the same time, uh, many proclaim the value and importance of upholding diverse cultural outlooks with sometimes radically different moral codes. So to avoid this hypocrisy, should we give up the belief in a universal moral code and see morality, as Nietzsche argued, as the product of a monotheistic culture, which over the centuries has often led to violence and even warfare? Or should we reassert confidence in our moral framework and deny alternative accounts? Is a universal moral code a guise for the tyranny of Western Christian ethics? Or is it the cornerstone of a fair and just society in any culture and at any time? So that's our uh, debate for the day. And uh, joining me, I have three eminent thinkers to uh, crunch through this fundamental question of our times. Tim Williamson, who's the Wiccan Professor of Logic at the University of Oxford. Welcome, Tim, who's made many, many important contributions to analytic philosophy, especially in the areas of epistemology and logic. We have Maria Bagramian, who's the uh, Professor of American Philosophy and I think one of the world's leading experts on moral and epistemological relativism. Her work focusing on contemporary epistemology, relativism, and one of her recent uh, projects, When Experts Disagree, 
quote unquote, perish the thought, received 3 million euros of funding from the European Commission. And then last but not least, we have David Friedman, very well-known uh, theorist, uh, known for work on anarcho-capitalism. And of course, uh, many of you may know his book, The Machinery of Freedom, which has become a kind of go-to text in that uh, subject area. So, so welcome to all three of you. In a second, I'm gonna ask our three distinguished panelists to, as it were, set out their stall on this question of uh, moral truths and moral tyrannies, you know, the absolutes and the relatives. So Tim, if you're ready, I'm going to come straight to you first, if you don't mind. And um, I guess give us a bit of orientation in terms of uh, your thinking on this subject, which as you know, has been set up as a kind of uh, dilemma of some kind, you know, true, absolute truths and, and relative tyrannies and so on. So love to hear your thoughts on that, Tim. Yeah, well, the, I think the first thing to say is that the, the usual reasons for uh, denying that uh, morality is absolute and, and universal are um, fallacious. Uh, so the usual kind of reasons have to do with um, disagreements on morality that are irreconcilable in the sense that that's, it's clear that, that neither side is ever going to convince uh, the other. But those disagreements do not show that there's no truth of the matter. Uh, because after, after all, for, we have irreconcilable disagreements, uh, for example, between um, evolutionary biologists and uh, creationist fundamentalists about the theory of evolution. But that doesn't show that there's no uh, truth of uh, that matter. And in fact, in, in some cases, it's not just that there may be a truth, um, but that we, we can know what it is. Although the fact that a truth is non-relative does not mean that it's easy to know. And of course, uh, physics is an example, uh, which is full of uh, things that are very hard to know, but nevertheless, there is a, a truth of the matter. Another thing that's worth bearing in mind is that when one says that a moral question has a true answer, one isn't automatically claiming to know what the answer is. Although absolutism about morality is sometimes uh, portrayed as um, a sort of arrogant view, I think it's actually the, the humbling uh, view because uh, it implies that some of our moral beliefs may be just false. Whereas by contrast, as a relativist uh, view, it lets us off the, the hook by uh, insisting that our, our moral beliefs are fine relative to our own perspective. I mean, that, there's, that we can't be falling short of some absolute uh, standard. But I don't, I don't want to push too much skepticism about um, knowledge of uh, moral truths because I think that, that I mean there are some moral truths which uh, is pretty plausible are known in most uh, societies and an example of that would be uh, torturing children for fun pretty widely known truth uh, amongst in human societies I think another point that needs to be remembered is that the absoluteness of morality does not imply that it morality consists of simple rules the, I mean, the absolute rightness or wrongness of an action may depend in very complex ways on the circumstances in which the action is done. And by the way, that's a completely different kind of dependence from its dependence on the circumstances of the person judging the action, and because those are not what's relevant. It's the circumstances of the action itself. And so uh, an example of, of that would be, that, let's say, that euthanasia is absolutely right in some circumstances and 
uh, absolutely uh, wrong in, in others. So it may be that some very complex uh, morality is in fact absolutely true, but doesn't consist of simple moral rules. That's uh, great, Tim. Thank you very much. I mean, you may be able to see my piano in the background, and that's certainly an instrument I use to torture my children with for fun when I play <laughs> that. Okay, very, very struck by also your point about um, uh, absolute truth not necessarily being easy to know. So maybe we'll, we'll come back to that one. Thank you very much, Tim. So Maria, can I, can I move on to you and just hear your kind of opening thoughts on this uh, subject? My thinking about ethics, morality and relativism and absolutism starts from the point that Tim actually rejected, namely the prevalence and significance of disagreement on ethical issues. I think uh, disagreement about ethics is quite different from disagreement between scientists and a religious fundamentalist on evolution, because in those cases, there are methodologies for establishing what is scientifically correct and incorrect. And uh, also there are, the, there are the presuppositions that the uh, religious fundamentalists bring to the topic of their disagreement. While in ethics, even when we have well-informed, equally educated uh, people coming from similar backgrounds, we can still have disagreement. And these are the cases of intractable or deep disagreements that don't apply to the same extent in the natural sciences. So how do we deal with these deep disagreements? There are a few options. One is to go relativist and to say they're all right, all these positions are correct, each according to their cultural context or background. That's an easy option. It resolves or dissolves the disagreement, but I don't find it satisfactory and we can discuss that later on. Second option is just to go skeptical and say, oh, there's no such truth in ethics. Uh, it's all subjective. That also, for various reasons, is not very satisfactory. Third option is what Tim suggested, that uh, we say, yeah, there, there are truths in ethics. They are difficult to find. Uh, but we have made progress in ethics. Uh, look, I mean, look at Aristotle or Kant and their views of uh, women or slavery or uh, race and compare it to what we believe now. These are very clear cases of moral progress. So there is such a thing as truth in the morality and we are moving towards that. Uh, so I do agree to that extent with Tim, but I don't think we can be absolutist about ethics. And here comes my own spiel on, on the issue. I'm not a relativist or a realist. I'm a pluralist about ethics. So uh, what does it mean to be a pluralist about ethics? Uh, means to say that there could be more than one right answer to the question, to the ethical question, how should we live, how should we conduct ourselves, how should we treat each other. Uh, we can rule out the wrong answers, and yes, we do rule out the answer that it's right to uh, torture children, but there are many right answers on how we should treat our children, uh, and, and the pluralist affirms that sort of plurality of truths rather than Absolutely. Thank you very much for, for that, Maria. And when we get into our first theme, I may come back to you to kick off because I find very interesting this idea of um, ethics being different from science, presumably because of an absence of empirical data to ground it in the same way. So when we start talking about what is ethics actually grounded in, maybe I can uh, come back to you on that one. And very interesting to the idea that there can be more than one right answer or that right answers can compete in some way or, or um, or coexist in some way. Thank you very much, Maria. And I will move on now then to, to you, David, if that's okay. Where, just tell us where you're coming from on your uh, 
I'm uh, also a mor- I'm a moral realist. Okay. Uh, my position, as far as I can tell so far, must be very similar to Tim's, okay. uh, although we did not conspire in advance. That my view is that there are true moral statements, that there's a moral reality out there in the same sense that there's a physical reality out there, and that we perceive the physical reality with our senses. We perceive the moral reality with what you might think of as a moral sense, what people will sometimes call moral intuition, that we test both of those by consistency, that we could, it could be that my perception of physical reality is wrong. I could be a brain in a vat. It could all be illusions. But the best test I can make is to make sure that my different sources of information on physical reality are consistent. I don't see a lion on the dining room table. When I reach out, I don't touch it. It doesn't scratch me. I don't smell it. Other pe- I don't see other people seeing the lion. If I meet someone who claims there's a lion on the table and is serious, I conclude he's insane, that he's not actually perceiving reality. I think if you look at moral reality, not in terms of high-level statements, such as what rights do we have, but in terms of actual perception, in this fully described situation, did this person act correctly? Was that good or bad? Which gets back to Tim's example of torturing children, uh, that I think you get a very large level of agreement across people uh, and across culture. And that a lot of what looks like disagreement about morality is either disagreement about physical reality, facts that are relevant to moral reality, that King James believed it was right to burn witches not because his moral beliefs were different, but because he believed in witchcraft, and we don't. Uh, Or else they are disagreements not about the underlying facts, but about the theories built on top of them. So that for about 2,000 years, uh, educated people believed that the Earth was at the center of the universe, surrounded by crystal spheres, the Ptolemaic view, uh, containing the planets and uh, the moon and the sun. But those people saw the same things. They saw the sun the same way we do. They saw objects the same way we do. They had just constructed a different high-level picture of the whole pattern. And in the same sense, I think that moral disagreements very largely, uh, maybe entirely, I'm not sure, come down to people constructing different high-level structures on the basis of their perception of both moral and physical reality. If you really get into political arguments, you find that the people very rarely agree about the physical facts, uh, quite aside from the moral facts. So that would be my position, which is what's sometimes described as moral realism. Very interesting. I find the idea of uh, your, your opening phrase, moral reality sort of exists almost in the same way as physical reality, fascinating. And I think that's a very helpful segue into our first theme here, which is um, what is morality founded on? So if we were to pick up from what David has just said, uh, you know, perhaps it is founded on a, real- a moral reality, even if there are subsequent uh, variations in the construction of that reality that different people might adopt. Um, as I said, Maria, if I could come to you first, if I may, on this kind of perhaps absurdly large question, but what is morality founded on? I mean, I've in preparation for this session, I've been thinking a lot about Nietzsche. I don't know if he's somebody you have in your dossier, um, but I'd be interested to know how you come at that question. Right. So I, I think to answer that, uh, that question, we should first start by asking what is morality about? And Uh, For me, morality is a way of thinking about how we should live and conduct ourselves. So morality is 
unlike physical reality in that uh, physical reality will persist regardless of the existence of sentient beings on this uh, planet, while moral reality, if there is such a thing, is dependent on uh, our lives and, and our existence on, on, on this planet and other sentient beings, maybe intelligent sentient beings else, elsewhere. So there are fundamental differences between physical reality and moral reality. And that also leads to the question of how do you find out about truths in morality, if there are any. So what is it that we try to do with our moral precept? What is the aim of it? I'm, I, I suppose I'm more Aristotelian here than anything else. We are aiming at human flourishing, but also more broadly at flourishing uh, in, in the environment we live in and also the flourishing of other creatures, non-human creatures that are around us. So if the human flourishing is the goal of morality, then whatever will bring about that flourishing uh, is, is what we are aiming at and that would be the foundation of ethics. Uh, but how do we decide what that flourishing is? That's where disagreement comes in. Uh, I think there are wrong answers to the question, what is human flourishing? Uh, we can look at societies where uh, what was seen as flourishing was completely wrong-headed, but there are also many different right answers. That's where the pluralism that I discussed right at the beginning of this session comes in. So I, I might just respond to a couple of the things that Maria was, uh, was saying. I mean, one is that about the question of how we should live. And, and I think difficulty in, so as we're isolating uh, morality come ethics, is, is that th there are many different meanings that can be given to the word should, because sometimes, sometimes should can just be a, a sort of practical should or, or maybe a legal should. And so I think what's, what is quite, quite tricky is distinguishing the, the moral should from other kinds of should. And it seems that what's characteristic of the moral should is, is that it's supposed to be something that in some way is relevant to, to any responsible agent, any person or um, a, a, you know, a responsible being of any species or, or whatever. Uh, uh, Tim, uh, Tim, I just want to come in briefly on that. So I'm, I'm inferring from what you're saying that uh, the answer to our overarching question here, what is morality, morality founded on, might include, as part of the answer, it's founded on a construction involving the word should. Morality is that which you should do. Well, but it, yes, but as I say, and we could also use the word ought, for example, but yeah. the trouble is that none of these words by themselves really unambiguously picks out morality because they can all be used in, in these other ways. And so the tricky thing is to say what's special about the, the moral use as opposed to these other uses. One other point I might make, just in, again, responding to, to Maria, um, who's saying that there are many right answers to the question of how should we how should we live? Of course, I mean I think it's I think Maria and I would agree that there are many uh, good ways to live. But if you if you just single out one good way to live, then you're not saying that that is how we should live. You're just saying that that's a way that um, it's permissible to live or something like that. And you know, and I don't think what we can have it can't be true both that we that we should 
live the the life of a carefree uh, shepherd, uh, supposedly, and that we should live the life of an ambitious academic or whatever, you know, because those are actually inconsistent with each other. So, you know, I think it's, I mean, saying that, that there are many answers to the question, how should we, we live? Uh, it's like saying that there are many answers to the question, how should we solve this mathematical problem? I mean, there might be all sorts of different ways that you can solve the problem, but uh, it's, it's not that there are, there's anything like conflicting uh, imperatives. I'm not sure that I, that whether I'm actually disagreeing with Maria here, but I think that the, the pluralism, in a way, is just a matter of, of saying that the, the actual moral shoulds are not by themselves very restrictive and and within that there is huge scope for different people yeah. to different lives all of which yeah so lo- lots of monitors which allow for different behaviors and actually don't help us necessarily to discriminate on that hierarchy of as it were capital m moral things that we should do and ordinary should things i should, I should take out the rubbish this evening for example yes and that might be a reason for not restricting morality to the word should which which does have it in a binary uh, yeah. It. Whereas uh, yeah. we also think that morality has something to do uh, uh, with questions about which ways of life are better than others. Sure. Yeah, indeed. And clearly the shepherd and the academic are the two most praiseworthy forms of life that we know. So thank you for that, too. I wanted uh, David to pick up, at first, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's a sort of well-known phrase in your field that this notion of moral reality I heard, um, you know, some disagreement on that concept from Maria. But but since we we are asking this question, what's morality founded on? Can you just give us a little bit more of a sense of what that moral reality is, on the assumption that that is what morality is founded on in some way? What 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 is is that thing? Moral reality. What is morality founded on? Is really two quite different questions. One of them is where does it come from, and one of them is how do we know what it is. With regard to the first, I don't know for either morality or physical reality. As far as I can tell, there is a moral universe, a set of facts out there about what acts are good or bad. Whether where it comes from, I don't know. There is a physical reality out there, a set of facts about the fact that there is a mouse sitting here, a computer mouse, not the kind that squeaks, and a cup and a phone and various other things that I can see around me. I don't have to know where that comes from in order to observe them. So uh, in that sense, uh, I don't know. I just, I observe that torturing small children is a bad thing to do, to take Tim's uh, particularly simple example. So then how do we find out what it is? Uh, And the answer then is we have perceptions. We have moral judgments. uh, And those perceptions can be mistaken, just as our physical judgments can be mistaken. I'm I'm sorry, David, I'm going to come in there. I'm still... Uh, not quite getting at what you mean by moral reality as such. What is that? I mean that it's a true statement that certain acts are bad and certain acts are good. So uh, moral reality is a statement of good and bad acts. Moral, no. No. Moral reality is the fact that statements about good or bad acts are actual statements of reality, that different people can perceive the same things, okay. looking at the same thing, not perfectly, just as with physical reality. But if you, you could ask the same question for physical reality. What does it mean to say that physical reality is real? And I think most people have a pretty clear idea of the difference between saying, I am a brain in a vat being sent false signals that make me think there's a mouse on my desktop here or a cup or a pen or whatever else I'm holding and believing that there actually are those objects out there. 
we've got a notion of pluralism. We've talked about the should. We've talked about morality as uh, what you, Maria, called an sort of Aristotelian notion of flourishing. So we've got some stakes in the ground, I guess, around what morality might be. Some uh, with a, a degree of pluralism in there, as well as a notion of, of a reality of morality. And I think that takes us really straight to the heart of this um, question, which is perhaps in a way, uh, it's as much a cultural, even a political and social question as it is a philosophical one, which is about this conflict between diverse cultural outlooks and a universal moral code. I mean, uh, I'll take an obvious example. I mean, human rights, for example, we think of as you mentioned torture, Tim, you know, we generally speaking in the West, whatever we mean by that, think torture is a jolly bad thing. And we think that's part of a universal human right, or at least many people do. And we know the history of the universal and the human right, particularly enlightenment and post-enlightenment thinking. But in other parts of the world, well, that's just not simply not the case. You know, and the notion of the universal uh, suddenly seems very local and particularly Western. So this, this is what I want to get at at the moment, this sort of notion that universal is really just a synonym or a wrapper for Western or whoever is the hegemon at the time or whether really we are in this sea of different uh, beliefs with people taking, making claims for what is uh, kind of morally right or wrong according to their local circumstances. So actually, Tim, I, want, I wonder if you could pick that one up first for us, if, if you don't mind, uh, because I, there were things in what you were saying there which made me think that, you know, there is some, that there is an interest that, you know, there is a, a contradiction there that isn't quite so easy to resolve between those two things. Yes. So, well, one, th one thing I'd like to say, first of all, is, uh, you know, I don't think that we should regard the West as tremendously superior to everyone else um, in, in respect of torture. I mean, it's true that on the whole, Western philosophers have, have been against torture, but when we think about the, uh, the behavior, you know, of the... British and American treatment of prisoners from Iraq and so on, and was even rationalised by by some academics. So I, you know, I don't I don't think that this is a very straightforward issue. And, and of course, the case of torture is partly that it's a matter of the difference between what theories you find academics in a given country expounding and how you find their governments behaving. Um, and it's also the case I think that in the in the West, when you start, you know, asking people questions, of, you know, uh, about whether they think that a torture would be justified if it was the only way of preventing an, a nuclear explosion or something, I think you, you then start getting much more mixed uh, answers. So, for example, if we want to insist that girls as well as boys should, should get formal education, then, then we are going to be uh, running counter to what... Uh, some uh, cultural outlooks hold, and and so I, th you know, I think I mean it's clear that there's some kind of balance can has to be struck here. But so Tim, let me let me stop you actually on that yeah. particular point because I think it's a very rich one. You know, girls should have formal educa formal education. You know, many cultures that's agreed. Some cultures, obviously, we know it's not. So you know. Here you are, leading philosopher, Wiccan professor of logic at the University of Oxford. What's the logical response to that? What do we? How can logic help us solve that question? Well, I, I don't think that you can derive very much about morality by pure logic. 
um, any more than you can derive very much about uh, physics by pure logic. I mean, you ha there has to be some kind of input from, from morality. We have to start out with some kind of ability to distinguish right and wrong before we can uh, reach any conclusions. Thank you, Tim. Let me put that question very bluntly to David then. Is it wrong that in certain cultures, women are denied an education morally? I don't know of any culture which objects in principle to women getting an education. If you look, for example, at medieval Islam, you will see the example of some women who were legal scholars, not very many relative to men who were legal scholars. I don't think it is wrong for somebody in a culture to say, given the circumstances of our society, the sensible thing for most women to do is to specialize in being wives and mothers. That's a division of labor that has existed in human society for a very long time. Uh, it has broken down in developed societies, essentially because we are rich enough and have uh, sufficiently low infant mortality rates so that it is practical for women to be part-time wives and mothers and have other activities as well. And in that society, it is sensible for most women to get uh, a higher education. In a society where the woman is going to be specializing in being a wife and mother, it spends a whole lot of time, makes a whole lot of sense for her to spend her growing up time apprenticing to the women around her in that particular job and learning it. So that's not really a moral difference. That's a difference in how you deal with it. I want to ask a similar question to Maria, if I may. And I'll put this in the most provocative terms possible because I've got a selection of philosophers and economists with me here. So is it ever morally right for a woman to be denied education? Uh, so for me, that's quite easy to answer. No, it's never right. Okay. Uh, and and uh, to put it in general framework, if you think of the end of ethics is to achieve flourishing for human beings, education yeah. is one of the most direct ways of achieving flourishing and to deny that uh, possibility to one segment of the society is just unfairness personified so so the answer is quite easy and this is one of the cases where we can have universal agreement if the premises are set up the way i i i did in terms of human flourishing but if you start from a different uh, premise then you might you might find yeah. answers and that's what happens in some islamic countries uh, I grew up in Iran, I've seen the yeah. Islamic revolution, so I know a thing or two about how that reasoning goes. So then, you know, with that background you have, how, how do you respond to this wider question about uh, this conflict between diverse cultural outlooks while believing in a universal moral code? I mean, can you hold those apparently difficult things together in, in, in mind at the same time? Yeah, so, so I can give you my answer. In, in some ways, it also responds to something that Tim was saying. I think there is actually quite a lot of agreement on some issues. Torture was one example, etc. And there's empirical evidence about that agreement. It's also very common sense agreement. If you ask torture victims in any country whatsoever, they would say that torture is wrong. So you, you, yeah. you, you don't need to ask the torturers. It's the victims that should be asked. But there are disagreements, uh, and this is where I disagree with Tim. So the disagreements are where, where that lead to pluralism about morality or about ethics are at the level of certain principles. For instance, uh, this is, I think, empirically established, but also philosophically acceptable that uh, some cultures, some societies, particularly non-Western ones, emphasize on 
ethics of care and duty towards the society and towards the family. While in Western cultures, for specific historic reasons, the issues of personal autonomy and uh, personal liberty have been emphasized. So we, have, we now have two conflicting ethical first principles. They are not possible to hold together. Often choices you make because of your ethics of care and duty yeah. towards others conflict with choices you might make if you prioritize autonomy. You have two possibly right answers to the same question. How should I conduct? myself and and then you just have to make up your mind uh, depending on your circumstance well let let me stick with you maria for our last uh theme because you use the word sort of western cultures there and i think we are looking at cultural difference as much as uh philosophical and, and possibly even economic arguments here the question i've got written in front of me is is culture shifting towards moral absolutism and culture is spelt with a small c and doesn't specify which culture so it's hard to know what we're talking about here. But when you hear that question, is culture shifting towards moral absolutism? I guess I want to ask you and David and Tim how you hear the word culture and whether you are inclined to answer that question with a yes or a no. Well, uh, the way I understood that question initially was whether, whether the way we are thinking in specific cultural context is leading us to prioritize or give more credence to moral absolutism. And if that's the question, then the answer is no. In fact, to my dismay and to Tim's dismay, and maybe also to David's, moral relativism is still very popular. And although I have defended Pluralism, I have never defended relativism. So, so empirically, I think that's just incorrect. Now, uh, there, 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 are, there are some very dangerous tendencies right now in Western democracies, and I bemoan them greatly, but I don't think they are leading to moral absolutism, but some other despicable tendencies, right. but we won't go into that right now. Sure, sure. Um, thanks, Maria. Um, David, what's your take on that? It's a very either or question is culture shifting towards moral absolutisms but but same question and sub question to you you know yes or no is culture shifting towards moral absolutism but also how do you hear the word culture in that question no i don't think so if you're talking about the world as a whole uh, i think what i take to be culture is the common beliefs that people in a variety of different societies have about what's right right or wrong i think that moral relativism is, if anything, a little bit less fashionable in the Western world than it was 30 years ago, but I may be wrong about that. I don't have a very adequate sample of that. Uh, I Like, I think, both Tim and Maria, I don't think that moral relativism makes a whole lot of sense, that if, if it's all right for the uh, Eskimo to send his grandfather out on an ice floe, it's also all right for me to stop him because I'm acting my, mor- my morals, he's acting by his. Mm. That's always been the problem mm. with that argument. But if I look around me, I can observe blips. I can observe that at the moment the culture I'm in is having a crazy religious fundamentalist movement called wokeism, and it has a lot of the same features as other uh, fundamentalists, as things like early Islam or or various other things of that sort, or the original Mormons or whatever. Uh, But that seems to me a blip on the general pattern. And if I look around me, as far as I can tell, most people in the world really believe in moral absolutism. They disagree about what the true morals are, of course, but most of them believe that they're right and people disagree with them are wrong. I think that's always been the case. That's the normal human view of the world, whether true or false. So I don't really see a 
a, a large difference along those lines. Yeah. Thanks, David. I'll, I'll bring you in, Tim, on this. I mean, David just mentioned, you know, the fundamental religion of wokeism. And I was just thinking of a uh, podcast I heard with John Gray talking about wokeism as uh, illiberal liberalism, which I guess is kind of at the heart of this question. Do you have a view on that sort of wokeism and how it fits with this question? Is culture shifting towards moral absolutism? Well, I, I mean, there certainly is some kind of um, trend um, amongst liberal intellectuals in, in the West to, um, or, you know, of a, a kind of woke, moralizing kind, which has a lot of unfortunate effects. I, but I don't, I don't think it's dominant trend in Western culture. I mean, it's it's, it's something that's much much more present in some sectors of universities in, in one end of the political spectrum, but it's it's not at all dominant. And and I think there have always I mean there have always been such trends or, you know with moralizing kind, kinds. I don't I don't really think that the the situation now is radically uh different. And I also don't see that there's been um a great change in um attitudes to to moral relativism which is still i mean still quite widespread it's maybe become a little less popular um because people saw the co the connection between moral relativism and and some sort of post-truth atmosphere not that you can blame it all on moral relativism but you know yeah. people start talking about alternative facts and so on that there's a, there's there's a kind of frisson of moral relativism there but but i i think that as it were, people who've thought seriously about these issues have, for many decades, seen that moral relativism is a kind of uh, dead end, and, um, and other forms of relativism too, and have been looking beyond them. But unfortunately, often because they've 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 lacked sufficient sufficiently rigorous philosophical education, they didn't have the the intellectual resources to escape from from these rather. Mm. useless ways of of things okay very good yes if only everybody was a philosopher everything would be much better sure well i don't uh, i don't want to live in a world where everybody is a philosopher <laughs> no what a what a thought this has been very rich and i'm extremely conscious that with three such distinguished panelists we could have uh, taken this discussion much much further but for now, can I just say personally, uh, and, and perhaps on behalf of the audience, thank you very much indeed to, to all three of you. That's been a, a wonderful debate. Thank you very much indeed. Thank, thank you. you, Robert. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.